0: So, throughout this trimester we've been uh, kind of posturing ourselves to learn what it means to be a witness. How do we witness God in our own lives so we can then witness to others? How do we increase the invite culture here at TLCC so we can share with more and more people uh, the good news about Jesus Christ and the life that God has dreamed for them? We've discussed what it looks like to be a person so indispensable that the world needs to stop witness, and take notice. In the last couple of weeks, we've been telling stories about Christ followers who have been MVPs of the faith so that the message of the gospel is shared to the ends of the earth. And so today, uh, we're going to take a look at a few MVPs of the faith, uh, the first being a man uh, from the book of Acts who was described as a plain and ordinary man. Shout out to him, plain and ordinary man. Uh, Another MVP we'll look at uh, was uh, a Belgium missionary to a specific group of people in Hawaii in the 1800s. And finally, we'll take a look at a well-known apologist and author uh, who is still alive today. And we'll almost, we'll almost kind of take this uh, in three different sections. and we'll talk about the importance uh, of defending our faith, what it means to be bold in our faith, and bold in our witness. Uh, and then how we can then witness to others because of that faith. And so hopefully uh, all three of these will kind of come together in the end to give you a bigger picture uh, of the responsibility and the privilege we have uh, as, as followers of Jesus Christ to partner with him in being true witnesses in spreading his gospel. And so we'll cover a lot of ground in a short amount of time. Um, and so my hope and my prayer is that our time together is encouraging, uh, informative, maybe makes us think a little, uh, and God willing, uh, possibly uh, life-changing for someone. Sound good? Alright, I'm glad you're with me. Uh, before we continue, I just want to read, a, a, a quickly read a verse from Hebrews that I believe will help frame uh, some of our discussion this morning. So here we go, Hebrews 11 starting in verse 1. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. And without faith, it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. I think that'll set up uh, the rest of what we'll kind of talk about together pretty well. Uh, But for now, let's talk about our first MVP. Anybody ever heard of Dr. Ravi Zacharias? Yes, Dr. Ravi Zacharias uh, is an Indian-born, Canadian-American Christian uh, who is an incredible witness of the faith. Dr. Zacharias was born in India in 1946 and and Zacharias says that uh, he was an atheist until the age of 17 when he tried to commit suicide by swallowing poison. While in the hospital, a local Christian worker brought him a Bible and told his mother to read to him from John 14. Zacharias says that it was John 14, 19 that touched him as the defining paradigm. John 14, 19 says this, because I live, you also will live. He said that he thought this may be the only hope, a new way of living, life as defined by the author of life. He then committed his life to Christ, praying, Jesus, if you are the one who gives life as it is meant to be, I want it. Please get me out of this hospital bed well, and I promise to leave no stone unturned in the pursuit of truth." Well, as you might have guessed, uh, Dr. Zacharias uh, left that hospital bed well, and he kept the promise that he made, and for the last 40 plus years, he's been speaking all over the world, challenging atheism, sharing the good news of Jesus, uh, and doing it with a, a certain gentleness uh, and respect that I think, uh, should be revered Uh, he consistently makes the claim that there are intense philosophical problems that arise from the denial of God's existence he is extremely gifted in apologetics and so we won't spend our whole time talking about apologetics and making claims for Christianity but I just want to touch on it quickly Uh, so so what is apologetics apologetics is the discipline which comes from the Greek word apologia which literally means to give an answer to give an answer to the questions of people. Uh, and I love the way the apostle Peter says this in 1 Peter uh, 3.15, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. I cannot think of a more beautiful definition of what apologetics is. And this came from Peter, the ordinary man, just a fisherman. For those of us who follow Jesus, how do we apply this to our lives? What does this mean for us today? And so a quote from Dr. Zacharias, this is the most open time I have ever sensed, but it's also the most difficult time to give clear and convincing answers. Quick tangent, uh, Friedrich Nietzsche was a German philosopher uh, and cultural critic, among many other things, who lived in the 19th century. He was the son of a minister And he had also started down the path of studying uh, theology and would follow in his father's footsteps. And before his 20th birthday, Nietzsche had argued that historical research had discredited the central teachings of Christianity. Uh, Nietzsche had a a, a poignancy and a particular candor to what he said. He didn't coin the phrase, God is dead, but he popularized it. He knew that this fact would lead to life void of meaning and void of absolute truths. And whether you uh, agree or disagree with Nietzsche, he raised the right questions of the implications of a godless universe. In one of his writings, uh, it's called The Parable of the Madman. It's pretty long. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But here's just a couple lines from The Parable of the Madman. You can check it out later if if you're interested in this kind of thing. Who gave us a sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? Is there any up or down left? Must not lanterns have to be lit in the morning hours? What he's really saying is the death of God is so humongous a deed that everything will have to be redefined. Dr. Zacharias poses that several entailments arise when you deny the existence of God. From morality to meaning to hope to origin of life to to so many more. And for the sake of time, I'd like to share with you some of Dr. Zacharias' thoughts on just one of these subjects, and that's morality. Dr. Zacharias proposed, if we deny the existence of God, there is then an intense philosophical problem with defining morality. How do you talk up and down? How do you define a moral law? Here's an illustration from the life of Dr. Zacharias. So uh, Dr. Zacharias is at the University of Nottingham. Uh, when a student stood up, you know, he's doing a, a kind of a talk and then a Q&A uh, session, and uh, a student stands up and says uh, something to the effect of, uh, there's no such being as God because of all the evil that is around in the world. And Dr. Zacharias politely responded and asked if they could talk on this subject for a few moments, and so the student agreed. Uh, and Dr. Zacharias said, when you say there's a such thing as evil, aren't you assuming there is such a thing as good?" The student said, yes. When you say there is such a thing as good, aren't you assuming there is such a thing as a moral law on the basis of which to distinguish between good and evil? The student struggled with this for a while, and Dr. Zacharias reminded him of a conversation between two great philosophers, uh, Frederick Copleston and Bertrand Russell, where Coppleston asked Russell, Mr. Russell, how do you differentiate between good and bad? And Russell said, well, it's the same way I differentiate between blue and green. And Cobbleston said, wait a minute, how do you differentiate between, you differentiate between blue and green by seeing, don't you? So how do you differentiate between good and bad? Birch and Russell then responded, on the basis of feeling. What else? Dr. Zacharias raises the point, in some cultures, they love their neighbors, and in other cultures, they kill them. Both on the basis of feeling? Is there not a preferred method of treatment? Bertrand Russell is later quoted as saying, I cannot live as though ethical values were simply a matter of personal taste. I do not know the solution to this. And so back to this conversation with the student uh, at the University of Nottingham. So when you say there's such a thing as evil, aren't you assuming there is such a thing as good? When you say there's such a thing as good, must you assume a moral law? But when you say there is such a thing as a moral law, you must posit a moral law giver. But that's whom you're trying to disprove and not prove. If there's no moral law giver, there's no moral law. If there's no moral law, there is no good. If there is no good, there is no evil. So what is your question? (laughs) The student responded with this. What then am I asking you? You see, when you raise the question and problem of evil in the world, you also raise the question of the nature of good. When you raise the question of the nature of good, you have to start wondering, how do you really arrive at the reality of good and evil when there is no good or no moral lawgiver? Or in other words, there is no God. You know, before Nietzsche died, he predicted because of the death of God and the birth of, of rationalism and, and relativism in the 19th century, he said the 20th century would be the bloodiest century yet. And in the 20th century, more people were killed than, other, than the, all the other 19th centuries put together. It's easy to come up and say, God is dead. God doesn't exist. But how then do you make any moral claim or pronouncement of any kind? Here's one of the most brilliant atheistic philosophers, Kai Nielsen. We have not been able to show that reason requires the moral point of view or that really rational persons, unhoodwinked by myth or ideology, need not be individual egoists or classical amoralists. Reason does not decide here. And this is very interesting. The picture I have painted for you is not a pleasant one reflection on this actually depresses me. Pure practical reason, even with a good knowledge of the facts, will not lead you to morality. Dr. Zacharias would say, to deny the existence of God is to take you out of the realm of moral postulates. Now if you're a thinking person, I'm sure you'll be able to break down uh, some of those theories and thoughts and arguments uh, that I just laid out, uh, and create some solid counter-arguments, and we barely scratched the surface on the question and topic of morality, and there's dozens of other topics that we we haven't discussed that, that we just won't be able to today, but please understand I am not attempting to prove or disprove God with one single argument or example. I am only attempting to make us think. And for those of us that believe the good news about Jesus, reinforce the importance of apologetics and the ability to provide reasonable, clear, and concise answers in accordance with our faith. Because ultimately, no matter how much we think and reason and argue and debate, the foundation of our worldview is the faith that we have in Jesus Christ. And so Dr. Zacharias is our first MVP of the faith today because he realizes that there are questions that need to be answered through the lens of a Christian worldview. We must realize that the truth claims of Christianity hold real weight within philosophical discussions. And Dr. Zacharias encourages us to be well-versed in our apologetics, all while showing gentleness and respect. And so that's part one. Let's keep that in our minds and we'll kind of move on to part two here. This is where we head into part two. Our theme verse for this series is Hebrews 12, starting in verse one, therefore, Since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. We have a great cloud of witnesses watching us and cheering us on to victory, and this brings us to our next MVP who is sitting in those stands right now, an ordinary man, a fisherman that we already talked about in the New Testament named Peter, who had an unrelenting boldness for Christ. And let's just quickly take a look uh, at how Peter spoke boldly for what he believes. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame, and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel... Excuse me. Then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. That's a bold witness. Sometimes I ask myself, "Why why am I not more bold in spirit? I think a lot of times a big part of that equation is fear and I think the same applied for Peter as we'll take a look at Peter didn't always have this attitude of boldness fear played a a big part in his life at one time and in fact in the days leading up to the death of Jesus he denied Christ multiple times fearing for his life and after the death of Jesus Peter and the other disciples were hiding behind locked doors on the evening of that first day of the week When the disciples were together with the doors locked for the fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. So here's some context for that verse real quick. Jesus told his disciples that he would have to die, but on the third day that he would rise again. He told them the plan, they knew what was to happen, that Jesus would be raised from the dead. But Peter and the disciples were not out speaking boldly and witnessing what they had experienced. They were fearful, they were afraid. May I suggest there was one single event in history that changed the perspective of Peter, the rest of the disciples, and should change our perspective as followers of Jesus. The one event that brought Peter from being timid, being selfish, and being afraid, to all of a sudden being bold, courageous, and evangelistic in all he did. That event is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. These guys who were in one moment hiding behind locked doors to now preaching the gospel wherever they went, even as they were put into prison, because the tomb was empty, because Christ was risen, because he defeated death, hell, and the grave. These very men who were timid in spirit were now bold and courageous because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen. We'll take some claps. This truth is the foundation of all that we believe as Christians. Without belief and faith in the resurrection of Jesus, we have no basis for what we believe. Here's the point we speak boldly about what we believe deeply. As human beings, we speak boldly about what we believe deeply. Anybody ever been like a real big fan of like a Netflix show or a movie or like a. Uh, Sneakers or something. Literally, you can literally think of anything if you're if if you really believe deeply in something man These sneakers are the best sneakers. I've ever had You got to check them out That might, might be a terrible example, but if we <laughs> if we speak boldly if we really 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 believe something deeply we speak boldly about it and If we're not speaking boldly about our faith in Jesus Do we really believe it deeply? And I'm asking myself that question first and foremost before I ask any of you. Peter says, let me tell you about the powerful name of Jesus. Again, he says in Acts 4.12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And the following verse says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled ordinary men, they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. If we are truly convinced, if we are truly convinced and persuaded in the resurrection of Jesus, we have no choice but to be bold in how we approach sharing this good news. And so Peter is our second MVP of the day. The Bible says he was a plain and ordinary man, a fisherman. He didn't speak boldly because he was a scholar or a teacher or a philosopher. He didn't speak and, and and witnessed boldly because he was all-knowing, because he studied every single day of his life. He spoke and witnessed boldly because he was simply convinced in the resurrection of Jesus and the power for salvation for anyone who believes in the name of Jesus Christ. If we are to be true and authentic witnesses to those around us, we we must find situations where we can be bold in our faith like Peter pray and ask God for boldness so number one just to recap as followers of Jesus we must realize the importance of apologetics so we can give clear and concise answers with gentleness and respect and number two we must be bold in our faith like Peter because we're convinced of the resurrection of Jesus and that salvation is found in no one else and so we got Ravi Zacharias and apologetics that plays a role. We have the boldness of our faith like Peter and the disciples that plays a role. And now we'll move on to the third part and this is where we'll start to get practical. How then do we witness? How do we share what we've already experienced in our own lives through Jesus Christ? How do we reach a generation that listens with its eyes and thinks with its feelings? and I'll humbly offer three propositions, three takeaways, and this is the first. We must first understand what it means to set apart Jesus in our hearts as Lord. Set apart Jesus in our hearts as Lord. The Lordship of Christ over your will, over your imagination, over your life. Set apart Jesus in your heart as Lord. Well, what does that exactly mean? In a conversation with the Pharisees, prominent uh, religious leaders of of the Jewish people at that time of uh, the time of Jesus, Jesus gave the two greatest commandments that encompassed all the laws and commandments that came before. In Matthew 22, one of the Pharisees asked, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment and the second is like it love your neighbor as yourself all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments now a few verses before this in the same chapter of Matthew Jesus is again speaking to the Pharisees and we'll quickly jump there teacher they said we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of god in accordance with the truth you, weren't, you aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Jesus says, show me the coin used for paying the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he asked them, whose image is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Jesus says, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And please hear me, I'm not trying to get into a a, a giving, monetary uh, uh, argument or discussion here. I'm just saying this, if the question had been asked, what belongs to God? The answer that Jesus might have given, whose image is on you? The Judeo-Christian worldview is the only worldview that will give you that extraordinary credential. The credential being that we are created in the image of God. Genesis 1:27 says, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So Jesus tells us to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And second is to love your neighbor as yourself. If we do not love our neighbor as ourselves, regardless of worldview or religion, or social views, or cultural background, we are violating the image of God. No matter how much we disagree with others, we are taught by Christ to love them. There are worldviews among us today that we may not find comfortable within our spheres of life, but we're commanded by God to love our fellow human being, no matter how much we disagree with them. We cannot afford to be quick to disagree To debate and to argue and slow to love. If Jesus himself looked at those assaulting him and said, Father forgive them because they don't know what they're doing, how much more is it your call and my call to love our fellow human being even in the face of hostility? We're living in a culture where violence is common and hate seems paramount, but neither is an option for us as followers of Jesus. We must love our fellow human being with the love of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 13, 13 says, and now these three remain faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. So takeaway one, we must set apart Christ in our hearts as Lord. And that means to love like Christ loves us. Takeaway number two, it is very critical that we understand that our apologetic cannot merely be heard it must be seen and felt our apologetic cannot merely be heard it must be seen and felt our apologetic has to be visible to people they're not watching they're not only watching with their eyes they're listening with their eyes this is exactly what Christian talked about last week Uh, and I think we must continually ask this question in of ourselves what does it look like to witness through service using our time, our treasures, our talents, to sacrificially give to those around us. This is exactly what we did at, uh, here at TLCC last weekend. We had our annual weekend of service, and I'm so proud of our church and what we do um, you know, throughout those, the, the weekends that we do, but this needs to be a recurring theme in our lives. And Christian did a great job last week, so if you weren't here, you didn't get a chance to listen to it, I'd really encourage you just to uh, go check it out and, and, and listen to it when you get a chance. Let me just give you one illustration that I think captures this concept thoroughly, and this brings us to our final MVP of the day, and we're wrapping up soon. You guys all right, hanging with me? All right, cool. Damien de Vooster was a Belgian missionary. Did I say Belgium? Belgian. Damien de Vooster was a Belgian missionary born on January 3rd, 1840. In 1863, his brother, who was to leave for a mission in the Hawaiian Islands, fell ill. And since preparations for the voyage had already been made, Damien obtained permission to take his brother's place and landed in Honolulu on March 19, 1864, to serve the people of Hawaii. At that time, the Hawaiian government decided on the harsh measure of quarantine aimed at preventing the spread of leprosy, the deportation to the neighboring island of Molokai, of all those infected, by what was then thought to be an incurable disease. And the missionaries in Hawaii were concerned about the abandoned people with leprosy and knew uh, the need there. However, such an assignment was a potential death sentence. And there were four missionaries who volunteered to go in shifts of three months at a time, and de Wooster was the first to leave. So four missionaries, three shifts at a time, or th- three months at a time, so those four missionaries would, would uh, encompass the whole year and they would do that for as long as they needed. And after his first three months, he was the first one there, after his first three months, through was his own request and the request of the people he was serving, he remained on Molokai. He loved the people. He touched them. He physically touched them. He embraced them. He helped build a chapel and a school and fought for resources to find a cure. And he called Molokai his home the next 16 years and one morning he was uh, pouring a a kettle of boiling water into a cup and some water swirled out of the uh, of the cup and fell down to his bare foot and it took him a moment to realize that he couldn't feel it he couldn't feel it. it must be a horrifying feeling And he took some more boiling water and poured it gently onto the other foot and he couldn't feel it he had contracted leprosy and eventually died from disease in 1889. As requested he was buried in Molokai, but in 1936 the Belgian government succeeded in having his body exhumed and moved back to Belgium. He was a hero to the people of Molokai, to the people with leprosy. He taught them to realize they were not lepers, they were people with leprosy. He always gave them the dignity of their personhood. And over a hundred years after his death, through requests from the people of Molokai, his right hand was sent back to the island. And today in the grave, at the grave site in Molokai, it's not the body of Damien de Wooster, it's the hand that reached out and touched the people there. Even the hostile are disarmed, not because they hear you, But when they see and feel your touch, bless people. Let them see it. Our apologetic must be visible to people. It cannot merely be argued. It cannot merely be argued. It needs to be felt in conviction. We must remember we are serving those created in the image of God. And so take away one, we must set apart Christ. In our hearts says Lord. Takeaway two, our apologetic cannot merely be heard. It must be seen and felt. And here's the final takeaway. Takeaway three, and we'll wrap this up. We must remember that through Jesus, there is hope. There is hope. We need to understand how much this world longs for hope. As the rock musician might say, I've got a God-shaped hole that's infected. And I'm petrified of being alone. It's pathetic, I know. And I toss and I turn in my bed. It's just like I lost my head. If I believe it, will that make it stop? If I told you I need you, is that what you want? And I'm broken and bleeding and begging for help. And I'm asking you, Jesus, Show yourself. There's a longing for hope in our world. There's a longing for hope. I'll close with one last illustration. I heard Dr. Zacharias tell a story. There's a story in the Houston Chronicle from March 15th, 2007. The title of this article is 11 year old fights for funeral for stillborn sister. An 11-year-old in Houston for one year, for one year fought for custody of his stillborn baby sister. The father had previously passed away and this 11-year-old goes to the medical authorities and asks for the body of his sister. And for one year he fought it. Finally, got the little body back. And he takes three of his cousins with some stuffed animals and some flowers and a pink blanket, and he holds a funeral for his baby sister that didn't have a name. He named her Rachel. His father had passed away when he was one year old. And the little boy said, now my daddy and my sister are in heaven together. The writer of the Houston Chronicle said, very rarely in life can you use the word greatness. But I looked into the eyes of this 11 year old boy and I was looking at greatness. How much does this world long for hope? So much so that this 11-year-old boy has this innate hope and desire to one day see his family in heaven again. There's meaning there, and there's love, and there's redemption, and there's hope. And that is what the gospel gave that no other worldview gives. It's the one thing the Bible gives to you and me that nothing else does. It gives us hope in a God so loving, hope in a God so longing to be in relationship with us. That he took his son Jesus up a hill to die, a death he never deserved. But in that death came his resurrection. And through that resurrection came hope in the forgiveness and grace he continually offers. And the gift of salvation that's for everyone. Romans 1 16 says this, my favorite verse, For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Your good deeds don't have to outweigh your bad deeds, all while you're wondering if you've succeeded in doing this in your life. The sum of your actions in this life doesn't decide your fate in the next life. You must simply declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. There's hope in the work that Jesus accomplished on the cross. There's hope in the life that he lived, in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And in that, the gospel of Jesus Christ is unique and mutually exclusive in comparison to all other worldviews. The gospel is beautiful, and it's beautifully true. The gospel of Jesus is the only answer to our wandering hearts, where he pulls us in with the absoluteness of his love and changes our hearts. There's a Russian official quoted as saying to C.S. Lewis in the aftermath and destruction of World War II, where he says to Lewis, outside of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I know of no other hope for mankind. What happened to Jesus on the cross is the answer to a world so wounded. And ultimately ultimately you reach a wounded civilization through a wounded savior. We have the privilege of telling people, hey, there's good news. There's good news. There's hope. And we have that message of good news. Let the world see it. It's a beautiful message. Live for him serve him and as Matthew writes let your light so shine before people that they will see your good works and glorify your father who is in heaven and so I pray that as followers of Jesus we are able to give clear and concise answers with gentleness and respect I pray that we can be bold in our faith and convinced of our salvation so much so that we have to speak about what we've seen heard and experienced and I pray that as witnesses that as we witness, we are able to love first, make our apologetic scene not just heard, and be continually reminded of the hope and power that is in the message of the gospel. Will you please stand with me? For those of you who will, let's pray together. And so, Father, we come to you right now, thanking you and praising you for the gift of your son, Jesus, and the salvation that it brings, the hope that it brings mankind, Father. Father, I pray that as we draw near to you and close to you and serve you, that we understand the importance and the responsibility of partnering with you in spreading this gospel, spreading this good news spreading this message of hope that is found in no other name but the name of jesus christ i pray that you would strengthen our resolve to be bold to witness boldly for the sake of our fellow human being i pray that we're able to give clear and concise answers with gentleness and respect that you come alongside us and lead us as we continue to spread God's love in ever-widening circles. In Jesus' name, and everybody said amen. amen. Amen.